It's uh, good to be with you. If I, if, if, if I hadn't had a chance to be, my name is Joe, and I'm the pastor here. Uh, we're in a series today uh, on what it means to love your neighbor. And uh, so uh, uh, more than just the neighbor sitting next to you, although you could probably say to him, you know, uh, we love you. Thanks for being here. It's good to be here. Uh, but we're going to talk about what it means to love your neighbor. Last week, we talked about what it meant in the context of diversity and inclusion, uh, letting people be who they are and loving them who they are. Today we're going to talk about it in the, in the realm of justice and mercy. And I'm going to start with a simple quote, which I've referenced a few times in this series from Desmond. Uh, he says, there comes a point where we need to stop just pulling people out of the river. Desmond Tutu says, there comes a point where when you stop just pulling people out of the river, we need to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. Okay. Now, I've gone back to this often as a very good definition and differentiation of justice and mercy. Mercy is you see someone in the river and you pull them out. He's not saying you shouldn't do that, by the way. You see someone who's hurting, and you pull, so we feed the hungry, we give water to the thirsty, we you know, visit, uh, we give shelter to the homeless, etc. That's mercy. But justice is trying to find out who pushed them into the river. Usually people don't jump willingly. Who pushed them? Why are people hungry? Why are there people who are in need of water, thirsty? Why, why, can't they, why don't they have access to themselves? What, what, why are there people who are homeless? So justice is saying, let's go upstream and figure out what's going on to cause us. So we can't say that we love our neighbors unless we're doing both of these things. Figuring out what it means to help people who are hurting, and then also going upstream to figure out what it is uh, that's causing people to be hurt. Or as uh, Micah says uh, uh, thousands of years ago, in Micah 6, 8, it's a popular verse that we've referenced often. He says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? So, so Micah's like, you, you know what God wants you to do. You already know it. What are you supposed to do? Have you forgotten? He says it's simple. He says to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Micah 6 8. To do justice and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This specific verse has been a, a bit of a theme for our, our church over the years. We even have shirts. That's what these shirts say. Love kindness, that's just one way to say it. Do justice and walk humbly. The do justice and walk humbly are small, not to uh, denote their, their, their importance. It's just that was the way the designer decided to design them, to balance the, the image. So uh, it, it's a great shirt. You guys will find a lot of shirts with Micah 6.8, because as I think Derek Webb, you said, said uh, they will know we are Christians by our shirts. Um, so, Micah 6.8, now that the screens uh, seem to be back up and running, can we put up that photo of, uh, of the shirts? Hopefully it's working. Yeah. So I did a search of Micah 6.8 shirts. You can find lots and lots of designs of how to do justice and to walk humbly and to love God. There were, there, I, there were pages, and you could scroll for a while, and you can get some for more affordable than others, and you can find the design uh, you think. So, but here's my hope today. My hope is that we can move beyond just wearing the shirt to living it out. But to do that, we have to understand what Micah meant when he said, haven't you heard, God wants you to do justice, love kindness, love mercy, walk humbly. 
So here's what you need to know. This verse is found in the book of Micah. Micah is one of the prophets in the Old Testament. So if you have a paper version of the Bible, you can kind of go somewhere near the middle. You can find Micah. And the role of the prophets was pretty simple. They were meant to speak hard truths, People think, say things that people didn't want to hear, often by holding leaders accountable. Now, I'm a huge fan of the prophets. If you know anything about me, we, we, have, we spend time with the prophets a lot. In fact, we did a whole series on the book of Micah. You can probably find it on our podcast. We go verse by verse. This is a number of years ago. Um, looking at a couple people here, probably for that series a long time ago, Micah. We walked through the whole book of Micah. So I'm pulling a lot from that research. But um, this particular verse, Micah 6.8, is a culmination of a lot of ideas. It's, it's the sixth chapter, so there was like five chapters before it. So to read this verse alone and to quote it or to put it on a shirt, which I'm not bashing, I literally wear this shirt all the time, but to do that is to jump into a conversation at the end of the conversation, it would be like this. You show up to a friend's house, so you, you know, back, back when you were a child, you show up to a friend's house and you happen to stumble on your friend's parents chewing them out, yelling at your friends but you didn't hear what they did wrong. All you heard was like, you should know better. Now later, you're hanging out with your friends. How many of you are gonna ask like, okay, well, what did you do? What did you, what, why did you get in trouble, right? You're like, what happened that your parents had to say, you know what is right? That's what we're gonna do today. Let's look at what happened so that, that would cause Micah to say, you know what is right, you know what you should be doing. So it starts with a problem. Now I'm gonna talk about this problem, this is my own interpretation. I stand by the interpretation, you're welcome to interpret it differently. You might not like my interpretation, there's a good chance it will make you uncomfortable. This is in line with the fact that we are studying a prophet, because I already told you their job is to make people uncomfortable. So we have to come to terms with that. Everyone okay with that? All right, here's where the problem starts, put it up. I was thinking this is a bad illustration because they did not use dollars during the time of Micah, but you get the idea. Starts with money. Money, 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 money. The more you have it, the better you are, the more comfortable you are, money. It just starts there though, that's not the main problem. It's just the first ingredient. Because money by itself isn't necessarily bad. Next slide. Ah, it's the love of money that it becomes a little bit trickier. So how Paul says it in First uh, Timothy, he's writing to one of the people he's mentoring and discipling, a leader in the early church. He says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But that's not the whole problem. Because logically, money can't love itself. So the problem is that people love money. Next slide. People love money. So the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and in their eagerness, or in people's eagerness, to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith. They've fallen in love with money, which means they're hoarding it, trying to get more of it, refusing to let any of it go. And here's the thing you need to realize. When we do that, our hearts change. Uh, Jesus says it like this. He says, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. I've talked about this a lot. He doesn't say um, that where your heart is, that's where your treasure is going to go. That's how we think life works. Like, oh, I'll, I'll put money in the things I care about. No, Jesus says that the things you care about 
the things you put money in are going to be the things you care about. And you can think logically about this. You know it. The, the, the things that you put money in, you now have an emotional investment in, and you start caring about it. It's one of the reasons, I'll just throw out there, uh, why we encourage people to give. We don't take up an offering or anything like that, but we encourage people to give in our community because we want people to care about our community. And I will tell you that you will care more about the community the more you give. That's just, that's just how we work as humans. So, um, so when we don't do that, our hearts change. Money, money makes us powerful, and it can make us feel safe. One of the things I realized is that security in our world is a product of money. Um, when we have security, you actually have greater protection. So an individual living in a tent who is homeless um, is very vulnerable to attack. And I've had a few homeless friends who've lost everything because people just broke into their tent. Whereas if you are very wealthy, you're in a gated community with a gated house, with a security system, and maybe a security guard. You see what I'm saying? Like security is a, you, your level of actual security is a product of how much money you have. So it helps you feel safe, it, and obviously it helps you uh, remain comfortable, and there's something deep inside of us that we want all of these things. We want to be powerful or feel safe, we want to be comfortable. So we grab it, we pursue it, we love it. But this isn't really even the full problem that Mike is addressing here. Next slide. The problem is, is that an entire community, back then, not today, okay, we're not, don't make it personal yet. Back then, everyone was loving money. And a whole society was built around people gaining more money and wanting more money and all the things that money could give you. Like, we built an entire community about the love of money. And we're almost now to the problem that Micah is addressing. But not quite there, because uh, not everyone is, uh, while everyone might be in love with money on some degree, uh, it's something slightly worse. Next slide. What happens is that while everyone might have a similar love for money, some people have more of it. Because they have more of it, they have greater power. And they are now able to make decisions for those who don't have it. Back then, not today. There are a few who have a lot of money and power, and they are making decisions for those who have less. This is the problem that Mike is facing. It's unchecked, wealthy rulers oppressing vulnerable people. Now, what does wealth buy you? It buys you a lot of things, comfort, power, et cetera. Um, but if you have enough of it, it can buy you four things that will allow you to do whatever you want. And if you can own these four things, you're able to do whatever you want. And this is what Micah spends the first six, first five chapters of Micah talking about. Now, it's wrapped up in poetic language, so it's hard to decipher. So I'm going to do some quotes. We're going to unpack it. And I put it into four very simple categories for you to understand. The first thing that wealthy, truly wealthy, very powerful people can own and control is the press. This is Micah's first problem. The wealthy and powerful controlled the press. Now, okay, of course, this took place a long time before the printing press, so the idea of controlling the press wasn't really what was going on. But, but what, 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 was, what was happening is that the wealthy and the powerful were able to control the public narrative how people talked about what was going on in their country. You see, Micah was facing a country with in, under immense stress and misfortune. People were really hurting. People were struggling. People were homeless. People were starving. And instead of addressing these truths and make, doing things to change the reality of the people in Israel, the leaders of Micah's day decided they just wanted to keep things positive, what we call toxic positivity. Here's how he explains it in Micah 2.6. He says, do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things. 
disgrace will not overtake us. These prophets that Micah is in disagreement with are saying, don't come and tell us that God is disappointed in us. Don't tell us that bad things are going to happen, that we're in trouble. We want to hear something positive. He goes on a couple of verses later in, in verse 11. He says, if a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, that would be just the prophet for these people. All right, so imagine being a prophet who has a hard word, and people don't want to hear it, right? And Now, how many of you want a prophet who's going to say that? I'll raise my hand. I want a prophet to come say, God's got wine and beer in your future. I'm like, I know. I'm, lunch is not that far away, and like, why not? But this prophet has a hard word, and people don't want to hear it. Certainly not those who are wealthy and powerful and thus comfortable. I'm comfortable. I have what I need. I have money and homes and servants. Don't come and tell me that God wants me to give those things up. Don't try and tell me that God wants me to be a little bit more uncomfortable. Micah says, I'm not the prophet people want. They would prefer one that came and said, everything's going to be great. Let's throw a party and forget our problems. Here's what I need you to hear. One of the enemies to justice is positivity. One of the enemies to justice is positivity. Now, in the right context, you have to remain positive. We call that hope, and hope is very important. But toxic positivity, where I'm going to pretend like there isn't really any problems, and you can see it everywhere. In fact, it's the number one response to any time you bring up an issue of justice. People will say, well, is that really an issue nowadays? When we become addicted to comfort, we become addicted to positivity because it keeps our comfort secure. And we refuse to realize that there are real problems of the world. Let me explain it like this. In September, last month, last month in the city of Columbus, there were 16 homicides. That means every other day, on average, someone was being murdered in our city. The leaders in Micah's day would sit, what I hear that, and they say, oh, don't be a downer. I came to church to be encouraged, to feel good about myself. God loves me. Let's go get a drink and pretend like people aren't getting shot in the streets. The truth is, is that the most recent count suggests that there are 1,200 people currently living in homeless shelters in Columbus. 1,200 people. And there are many, many more who are living in tents in homeless communities. Now, the comfortable leaders of my day would say, oh, please, don't bring that up over dinner. You're making me, you know, this is supposed to be fun. We can't fix a problem until we understand it. And people work hard, taken down, and all of, you know, and so their cover was blown and they were moved out. Now, what people don't know, and what I'm going to tell you, is those people aren't necessarily provided housing when they get kicked out of a homeless camp. They just are expected to go find another place to camp. So there's no real solution. They're, they're still camping. We just don't want you camping here because you're making the, nervous, the, the neighbors nervous. So as neighborhoods gentrify, homeless camps are kicked out, and they move up. And, and, and because those who are comfortable don't want to be reminded that there are those who are not. Now, Micah says no. We can't be people of justice and mercy if we refuse to acknowledge that there's a problem in our society. 
So the first complaint that Micah has is that the wealthy and powerful control the press. They, they, they have control of the narrative. They're controlling what's being said amongst the people. And how do they control the narrative? Well, that's very simple. They control another segment of society. They control the leaders. Micah 3.11 says it like this. Her leaders judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for a price. And her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they look for the Lord's support and say, is not the Lord amongst us? No disaster will come upon us. You see here, they have the leaders in their pocket, both political and religious leaders, which at this time, uh, back then, not today, of course, they were both pretty powerful. Um, and they're both in the pocket of the wealthy. The leaders who are meant to judge and rule the people are getting paid to do whatever the wealthy want them to do. Same with the priests, and the same with the prophets who are just saying what people want to do. They own the judges and the priests and the prophets. So the prophets that Micah is up against, his peers, so to speak, are on the payroll of the rich and powerful. This feels like a little bit of like a good you know, movie that would take place in Boston, you know, like, oh, they're on the payroll. And I'd watch that movie. But instead of pointing out the injustice or pointing out the injustice in their community, these prophets are telling their benefactors exactly what they want to hear. God is with you. God loves you. There's nothing to be concerned with. It's amazing how much money you can make in America if you are a preacher that only reminds people that God wants to bless you. The prophets here were in it for the money. He says this like in in chapter 3, verse 5. He says, as for the prophets who lead my people astray, they proclaim peace if they have something to eat, but prepare to wage war against anyone who refuses to feed them. Do you see what he's saying there? He said, the prophets will tell you good things if you feed them. But if you refuse to take care of them and give them what they want, then they will tell you that war is going to be upon you. They'll tell you whatever you want to hear as long as you keep paying their salary. Okay, this one's a... I'm on a salary, FYI. So this is a little uncomfortable for me. Let me pretend for a moment that I am Micah and I'm not getting paid. Uh, Here's what I would say. And I'm saying this to myself as well as anyone. Things are not okay. And I don't think God is happy with it. Does God love you? Yes. Do I want you to feel guilty and shame? No. That's not, those aren't useful. They're not useful emotions. But God is expecting God's people to be people of justice and of mercy. And it's not going to be easy because here's the reality. The rich and powerful not only own the press and the local leaders, they own the markets. This is so relevant going back all the way thousands and thousands of years to this prophet. He explains uh, this in chapter 6. He says, shall I acquit someone with dishonest scales with a bag of false weights? Your rich people are violent. Your inhabitants are liars and their tongues speak deceitfully. He's talking about scales here. Dishonest scales was a, you know, an old way of measuring, um, and we still call it scales, I think, even in some of the county auditor places, you know, like some of this stuff. But it's a way of measuring, and they had dishonest scales, so they could, they could take advantage of people. The, the wealthy could take advantage. They got to control what things are paid for, and they're taking advantage of the market for their own good. Uh, but it gets even more practical than that. In, in, in chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, he explains, Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. 
At morning's light, they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance because they have the power to do it. Do you see what he's saying here? The reason people were homeless back then and they were suffering and hurting is because in the days of Micah, the rich and powerful were buying up houses and taking ownership of land and pushing people out into the streets. Back then, that's what was happening. So when the rich control the markets, the only uh, um, uh, the question becomes, how do they get away with it? Well, that's simple, because they own one more segment of society. Back then, Micah, six, uh, Micah 3, verses 1 through 3 explains this. Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, should not embrace justice. You hate good and, and love evil. You tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones. You eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin, and break their bones in pieces. Who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. One of the things, and this is, once again, poetic language, one of the things that the rich at Micah's day owned was the legal system. And he's talking about the leaders who are supposed to enact justice for all people equally. In reality, they were favoring the wealthy. Now, this is extremely harsh language. He is accusing the leaders of his people of cannibalism, which is an appropriate theme in the Halloween season. That seems like something to be in a horror film. But he doesn't mean it literally. He's using harsh, poetic, prophetic words. The rulers of God's people were letting the rich call the shots at the expense of the vulnerable. Now here's how, this is why he calls it cannibalism. As if the poor and hurting and lame and outcast and marginalized were nothing more than a commodity to be consumed. You're treating the average person as a commodity to be consumed. What can I get out of them? And, 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 and the prophet says, this is, this is as bad as cannibalism. They built a system where the less fortunate were nothing more than a commodity to be consumed. So that's the problem. Now, here's what I want you to hear. The prophet preaches this judgment. He, he, in a lot of other words, but I shared a few of the passages, he has some really hard things to say. Usually when a prophet preaches, he's speaking about a specific people, a specific nation, like Obadiah is a, a prophet I'm studying right now. He ha has a strong word against Edom. And so uh, usually a prophet is speaking uh, against a specific people, and they, they have to, so when we apply it to ourselves, when we bring it into the modern world, we have to be careful how we apply these words out of context. So, but here's the craziest part. And, and what I want to tell you, the question is, who is Micah making these original claims against? Well, Micah chapter 1, verse 1 tells us, here's what it says. He says, here's who he's preaching against. Hear you peoples, all of you. Listen, earth, and all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you. All of the earth. This is kind of unique for Micah. All of the earth, everyone who lives in it, all the people. Back then, those people, and we get to decide today, you can decide for yourself whether this applies to us today, whether it was just everyone back then. I was thinking about why we, uh, why there was a whole generation of people who loved to go overseas to do missions. Anyone done an over, over, overseas mission trip? I went on a couple. I was raised learning about the missionaries of the 1950s. Uh, I, I still find their stories of faith and courage to be profound and inspirational. But I was reflecting on it in light of this passage, and, 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 I, and I, don't, I, I think there's, you know, 
there's an honest critique of overseas missions. There's, there's actually a really good way in which we can engage in other cultures and learn from other cultures. Um, so I'm not completely against it. But one of the things I was thinking about, and this might not apply to you, but it applies to me, so you can do what you want with it, is I really like the idea of overseas missions because um, my role in serving those people was only as a hero. You know, like I was all good. Didn't you know what I mean? Like I came with what they needed. And I was, it was, a, it was only a positive, I was not responsible personally for their suffering. Only for the way in which I was gonna help them. Do, do you see what I'm saying? Here's the reality. I'm sorry that this is just the reality. Those who are suffering in our community, in our city, we're complicit in a much more significant way, aren't we? Which is why we'd rather pretend like there, there isn't any suffering. Because I participate in the system that's producing homelessness. And do you, do you understand? Like, I, I might not be as complicit as someone else. I'm not here to compare. I'm just saying like, I'm participating in the thing that is happening. Now, this is, what I, this is why I'm saying this. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. It's not helpful. Micah lays out a plan, and I'm going to talk about it. He says, here's what you do. Here's how you live justly. And you're not going to care about Micah's plan if you don't feel ownership over the problem. So I want you to feel, I'm, that's me being transparent with you. I want you to feel a little ownership over the problem. You've got to feel a little bit. You don't have to feel guilty. You don't have to feel shame. Just I want you to own it a little bit. You can't own the whole problem because it will destroy you. It will wear you out. But there's a small part you get to play. You have a little bit of agency in this world. You get to make decisions. And I want you to own a little bit so that you can own part of the solution. So here is Micah's solution. We've, I've shared the problem. It's my interpretation. I've shared the verses that I pulled it from. You can read it for yourself. Here's what I think is the solution. There's one section of chapter 4 where Micah paints a picture of a better world. He says, oh, the day is coming where it'll look like this. It'll be different. And here's what he says. He, 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 he says, this is the way forward. Here's what he says, uh, uh, Micah chapter 4, verses 2 through 4, and then we're going to work through this passage. He says, many nations will come and say, on, in this day, many nations will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his way so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Once again, you got to demystify the poetic, prophetic language. It's kind of wrapped up in poetry, right? So you got to know how to read poetry. He says, there's coming a day when the nations of the world will actually care about how God wants things done. And that's our first lesson in finding a solution and pursuing a solution. The solution won't be because the nations figured it out on their own. They'll have to go to God. Because here's the thing. Every nation throughout the history of the world has gotten it wrong in one way or another. So it can't start with the nations. It has to start. Step one, we have to allow God to teach us. You know, Micah says, do justice, love mercy, and what? Walk humbly with God. He says, this is how you're actually going to do it. We need the humility to admit that we can't figure it out. This is why I don't want you to own the whole problem. It's too much. You can't figure it out. It's too much. It's too big of a problem. We have to have the humility to admit we can't figure it out and the courage to go and do whatever part God is calling you to and God is calling us to. 
We just have to, we have to play our role in God's grand narrative. No matter how small that role is or how profound or how difficult, we have to have the courage to step out in faith and do it. I don't see us changing the world for the better if we try to do it on our own strength. If we try to do it with our own ears, oh, I can figure this out. I got to figure it out. Here's what everyone wants to do. Which is like, what I'm saying is like those conversations around Thanksgiving where everyone has a solution for our nation's problems, well, they just need to. I don't think that's the solution. It, it starts with a humility of saying, I gotta walk with God. We don't have what it takes. Don't get me wrong. Don't, don't misunderstand me. It will take everything you have. But without God using it and, and making something of it, we're gonna be lost. Now, I, we believe as Christians that God has shown us a way. We, we believe, if we move this into the New Testament, that, that, that Jesus is the way that God has given us to make things right. He says that there'll come a day where he will teach us, right? He says he will teach us his ways. And we look at that as people of faith who are following Jesus. Say, oh, Jesus came and taught us his ways. Um, we, we look to Jesus, who was the one who came to teach us to follow his teachings of love and forgiveness and compassion and grace and generosity. These things we do in the name of Jesus have made the world a better place already, and that's why we continue to do them. So it starts with God through the example of Jesus. And as we follow Jesus, these things happen. Verse 3, he will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Paints this picture, once again, wrapped up in poetic language of a day when Jesus and the work of the Spirit and the people of God will take the tools of the empire and subvert them into tools for peace and prosperity for all. You see, as the old saying goes, a hammer, uh, to a hammer, everything's a nail. You've heard this before, to a hammer, everything's a nail. We, as people of God, need to take hammers and turn them into something else so we stop hitting everyone, okay? That, that's, that's one of the ways we do this. We have to subvert the empire's tools, taking weapons and making them into gardening equipment. That, that's what he's saying. So step two is you subvert the empire's tools. So the world sees a gun, but the followers of Jesus see the raw materials for a shovel. Well, that could be repurposed. We, we see Jesus do this all the time, um, time, but the best example is right here cross. I can't think of a more profound example of how Jesus converted a tool of the empire. Because if you, you know that the cross was an execution tool. It was used to kill people. And now when we look at it, we see a symbol for peace, salvation, life. It's one of the reasons why Protestants leave it empty, because it's actually a symbol for resurrection in this flipped up way of reimagining what this was originally, which was a tool of the empire to torture and kill people, Jesus flipped it on its head. Not literally, because I think that's a bad symbol, but, um, <laughs> and he made it into something else. So this is what it looks like to subvert the empire's tool. You know, the average charitable giver might, might see a giving as a chance to write off on their taxes. But the follower of Jesus sees giving as a chance to change the world through generosity. The average homeowner might see homeless camps as a threat to their home's value or their neighborhood's safety. 
the followers of Jesus see people who are called, that were called to love and serve. The average American might see guns as a right. The follower of Jesus, I would say, sees guns as a misuse of raw materials. Boy, that metal could have been used for something better. And when we imagine things differently, our community becomes different. And it will change in profound ways, or as Micah explains in verse 4, everyone will send to their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. For the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations will walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Once again, poetic language we have to unpack. He's saying instead of the rich and powerful owning everything, each will have their own tree to sit under, which is a poetic way of saying everyone will have their own place to call home. You, you want to know whether the church is successful in accomplishing God's mission of justice and mercy? It's simple. What are the problems in the world? Where are people suffering? And are those things changing? Because in Micah's day, people were losing their homes to the rich and powerful. And he imagined a day where they'd have their own homes. They each have a tree to sit under, which is a poetic way of saying they'd have their own place to call home. They'd have their own plot of land that they could call home. Justice is about setting things right. And this is where we often get it wrong. The rich, the powerful, the privileged aren't the ones who are going to make justice happen. It's just not how it works. Here's how Micah says it in verse 6, and this is the last one we'll end on. He says, I will gather the lame, I will assemble the exiles and those I have brought to grief. I will make the lame my remnant, those driven away, a strong nation. This new vision he has for God's kingdom of justice and mercy will be led by those society tossed aside. The, the rich and powerful aren't capable of uh, leading the way. It will be the lame, the exiled, and the grieving. See, we, we think we're sometimes here, if we're living pretty comfortable lives, we think we're here to lift up the broken and the hurting, but, but you have to you misunderstand. God plans to use the lame to lead the way. Or, or if you're like, well, that doesn't make sense. Well, here's how Paul said it. The weak things in this world will be used to shame the strong, and the foolish things in this world will be used to shame the wise, right? Or if, or if you want, prefer Jesus, Jesus says, what, the last will be first, <laughs> and the least will be greatest? Or as Micah says here, God will use the lame to rebuild his community. Look at history. Can you think of a civil rights movement that wasn't led by those who were being oppressed? Who do you think marched for the women's right to vote? Men? It didn't happen. Who do you think most of the people who are marching for a black person's right to exist in America equally? Do you think the majority of those out in the streets were white? No. The, 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 the final step to really overcoming injustice is to allow the marginalized and the hurting and the oppressed lead the way. We're going to close. If the band wants to come up and get ready for the final song, they can do that. But uh, while they do, I want to close by inviting you to join us in, 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 in praying with me. So this last week, we've uh, spent time uh, right here, setting aside time for people to pray, and we offered uh, a number of prayer prompts and scripture readings. And one of the uh, we were walking through this series as part of the prayer vigil, and so we've written uh, a little prayer around justice and mercy um, that includes a, a quote from Jesus. Um, and I just want to invite you to um, pray that uh, with me. Um, so the words will be on the screen. Can we put those up? Um, and. Uh, 
if you feel so led, you don't have to. This, there's no pressure here. But if you feel so led, uh, would you read this prayer with me in unison? You have called us not only to care for the needs of those who are hurting, but to push back against the systems that are at the root of that hurt. Show us how to, to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. Give us a heart for mercy and a will for justice. Show us what you mean when your son stood in the synagogue and declared, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has set me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Help us rely on that same spirit at work in our lives so that we too might be good news to the poor. Amen.